If you live in an old house, chances are many, many people walked the same floors and slept in the same rooms over the years. But have you ever wondered who they were, what their lives were like? Manhattan resident Catherine Grider never gave it a second thought until she found out her Lower East Side row house was in jeopardy of falling down. She writes all about her experiences in her new book, The Archaeology of Home, an epic set on a thousand square feet of the Lower East Side. Catherine, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Your story starts when you were told to vacate your home at 239 East 7th Street or risk it crumbling to the ground. Take us back to that evening when you got that call in January 2002. Yeah. Well, it was quite a dramatic moment, but it had a certain amount of buildup because we've been living in this this row house and we owned a co-op and it. it was three stories and, and it had problems developing over a certain number of months. Um, there was some sinking in the basement, and we had leaks in the roof, and at one point we had you know, sort of the water trickling through the light fixtures when it rained. And so we were becoming kind of increasingly uneasy with the condition of the building, although it looked fine when we moved in. And ultimately, the real worry was this crack that opened up in the facade, and it sort of slowly made its way up the front of the building. And in fact, there was a corresponding crack on the inside of our apartment. So we thought, gee whiz, is this building actually, you know, what's going to happen? So we and our co-owners hired this group of, you know, an engineer and an architect to go and give us kind of the fill on what was going on and what we should do to fix it. And when they got underneath the basement and looked at the foundation, the, the, the verdict was actually, it's not a question of what you're going to do to fix it. It's you need to get out right now. And that's what that phone call was. It was, you know, at night I was with my kids. and um, Your husband was out of town, he right? He actually happened to be out of town for the weekend. And so it was, you know, it's worse than we thought. The foundation is what it, they call in a failed condition, which was kind of a locution I puzzled over again and again. What does that mean, in a failed condition, you know? meaning it wasn't doing its job. And so if there was any more settling in the earth or if there was this very soaking rain, um, something very bad might happen. How many other owners were there in this co-op building? There were two other owners. There was three stories and a basement. So there was one guy who had the basement, one guy who had the parlor floor, and we had the two upper floors. So you owned more shares than yes, anyone else. Yes, which was politically a kind of both a blessing and a curse, as it turned out. Didn't one of the other owners actually take you to court, blame you for the problems at this building? Yes, yes. I mean, it's sort of like a marriage gone bad. You know, you don't realize when you get into a co-op that, hey, you're throwing in your lot with these folks and you better, you know, you better know what you're getting into um, because you're, you're mixing yourselves with them financially and creating this sort of almost quasi-family. And so this was like a very nasty divorce where... Things just went very much awry. And as it turned out, we were going in one direction. My husband and I were going in one direction as opposed, as in terms of what we wanted to do about it. And he simply wanted us to take out this big loan to fix it. And we just really didn't have the money, basically. So he sued us. Yeah, he brought us to court. Um, he was a minority uh, owner. And he essentially tried to force us to take on this, this construction loan, um, and it, it didn't work, but it caused a lot of expense and dismay and stress, as litigation tends to do. Did you bring in an engineer when you first moved into the building to take a look? Yeah, we did. You know, we sort of did the due diligence, the kind of stuff 
people tell you you ought to do. You know, um, I was pregnant with our first child, and so we were kind of, we lived on the block already for five years, and we thought how lovely it was, and we found this place, and so we were keen on getting into it. You know, I can't say that our focus was on taking it apart from top to bottom. It was more like we wanted to get the okay from this guy, and he gave it to us. I mean, he was an engineer. He did his walkthrough. And later people said, are you kidding me? This this is like a fun house. It's like it's not even level. How could anybody miss this? But the truth of the matter is that it wasn't until the engineer, the architect, actually had probes done, you know, opening up the walls and opening up the foundation, crawling underneath the foundation to take pictures, that he actually saw these crumbling, rotten beams. There were actually differences of opinions about whether they were burned or rotted or what the heck was going on with them. You couldn't see the extent of these problems on the surface. Right, because, yeah, and it took going into the walls, which obviously a buyer cannot do. In your research, you discovered that 239 East 7th Street was built on what was once a wide-open salt marsh. Do you think that in any way that compromised the integrity of this building? Yes, yes, I do. I mean, that is has been a problem um, from the beginning for buildings in general in this area. And it's not only that it's very shifty ground, and they didn't have the deep piles then. They just had basically a stone slab, you know. The main problem was water in people's cellars. And, you know, people would live in these cellars. And, you know, when there was a, you know, high high water, um, lots of rain or whatever, they'd have water in their basements over and over again. So, yeah, and it's kind of this sandy, shifty fill that included ash and garbage and, you know, oyster shells and all sorts of stuff that they built it on in the first place. So, You talk a lot in your book about New York City's watery natural geography. Yeah, and it's, it's a fairly, it's, it's called the water map. So it's widely referred to this guy, Egbert Bealey, who, who, uh, who was an engineer and, and um and he was kind of obsessed, this is in the mid-19th century, and he was kind of obsessed with the state of the the natural topography before Manhattan had been built on it. Of course, it had been these rocky outcroppings and hills and lots and lots of water. You had the, not only the salt marshes, but fresh marshy sort of ponds inland. And then you had quite a few waterways. So in our area which is the East Village now, you had this salt marsh, which was tidal, and then you had these tidal creeks that ran through it, which were later kind of made into ditches and property lines. You know, our house actually was almost directly on top of one of those. So that natural topography doesn't completely go away. I mean, it's we can't see it, but there's a sort of substratum that exists. Didn't you learn that this building actually had problems dating back to the mid-1800s? Yeah, you know, it's funny because this building was built as sort of a, it looks like a single family house, but it's really kind of, was kind of worker housing in the way it was used. It was not built with the utmost sort of care to begin with. It was sort of pretty cheap housing. And, you know, this was one of the first things that got me into the idea of, wow, this really fascinating human story here is I found this, pulling the the old buildings permits, I found this permit um, that I thought was supposed to have taken place in 1875, this, uh, 1975, this addition on the building. And the date was actually 1875. And it said, we're going to take out the entire rear facade, it being in a very unsafe condition. So I realized at the time, you know, here we are trying to figure out what happened over the last five years. Um, And this is a much, much, much deeper, longer story than that. 
and you were a homeowner, so the Red Cross wasn't out there with donuts and hot coffee for you. You had to go about this all on your own, find another place to yeah. live, etc. Yeah, it was kind of a, you know, I was pretty naive myself. It was sort of a rude uh, surprise that the buildings department doesn't look on you as a victim, you know? <laughs> they look on you as a, as a as a somebody who is in violation of their rules. Um, so, yeah, and they, they don't tell you what to do about it either. I mean, you, you, you have to know what you're doing to some extent. Where did you all go? Well, we went all over the place for a while. I mean, we had these two little kids, and um, our daughter was in pre-K in the local you know, nearby public school. So when we moved that weekend, we moved right across the street. We actually got a short-term lease in this re- building right across tenement right across the street. So we were there for a few months. Um, then we were kind of really running out of money and in kind of desperate straits. And we went down to my in-law's place for a few months over the summer in Virginia And we came back and ran another, you know, we kind of wandered for almost two years. What kind of financial toll did this take on your family? It was more or less ruinous, yeah. I mean, (laughs) you know, we made all the mistakes we could make, you can almost say. But in the end, it was funny because as disastrous as it was for us, and we we kind of, it was a a reversal that we, we never really recovered from in some ways, the market in East Village real estate was increasing so much that we actually were able to sell the building and get a pretty good price for it. You sold the building to restaurateurs, right? Right, a local guy, yeah. And, you know, he, he I must add, um, had to redo it completely. I mean, it wasn't like he just bought it and moved in. He, he had to put, I don't know how much he put in, but he rebuilt it. So it was essentially like building a new building there. You say in the book that 239 East 7th Street had become an embodied resource reservoir for you. What do you mean by that? Well, it was funny because I, being so kind of abruptly displaced, made it clear to me how much I had stored there. And I mean both both symbolically, metaphorically, sort of my past and my future and my sense of myself and a kind of image of my own body even because I was so disoriented and so grieving, you know, thinking about, oh, I've lost my family nest. I had these two, we had these two little children that we'd brought home there. So we thought we would raise them there. And I felt, you know, that I'd failed somehow as a mother and that I'd lost my place in the neighborhood, um, but also had these kind of bad dreams about my teeth getting loose and my body kind of falling apart. So, And then there were these very, very practical questions like, you know, where is my vegetable peeler? You know, what should I do with the cookie sprinkles that we have and the, the you know, baking pans and the, you know. Um, so it was really quite a quite a lesson in the the meaning of home and how it has this very important functional role in your life it helps you to function to do one thing after another that you do in your routine and it also is this very creative meaningful process where you invest it with ideas about who you are and who your family is and what your future will be it can be very painful and disorienting to to suddenly lose that a long list of people called 239 East 7th Street home before you and your family did. You researched these previous inhabitants. Which one would you say you most connected with? 
Well, I felt I could learn from all of them. I felt that there was a connection with all of them and a kind of simpatico, you know, because I felt on some level that we all were displaced from that part of the world and, and all had shared something almost mystical and quite profound by share, exchanging ourselves with this same place. There was one family in particular that whose story very much moved me. There was a, one woman in the late 19th century named Rachel Hart whose parents um, had bought the house in 1870. And she had she was in her early 20s, and she, she'd been married and had two children in very quick succession um, down below Houston, lower Manhattan and and her, she lost her husband um, to diphtheria. And so she took her two little babies and moved into 239 with her parents. Her father was a glazier, and um, her mother was also a German immigrant from Bavaria. So she raised these children in the house, and I felt a real connection with her because I, too, of course, had raised my they, My children were about the same age as hers when I first encountered them, if you see what I mean. And But what happened to her was in such sharp contrast, as much as I sort of felt sorry for myself, her story was truly raw and, and tragic. Her son, I had to assume, died because he kind of disappeared from the records. And then her daughter became a milliner, a hat maker, and she too died in the house uh, as a young, very young woman of tuberculosis, which was extremely common at the time. And then what happened to the mother, Rachel, is that she went to an insane asylum on Ward's Island, which is in Hellgate, you know, the uppermost part of the East River. And um, she lived out the last 10 years of her life there with with, uh, melancholia. And, you know, she too finally died of, of tuberculosis with melancholia being a contributing cause, as the doctor said. And it just, you know, it was her choices were so circumscribed. As a woman, she couldn't have gotten a job to support herself. She couldn't, she was sort of wedged between her parents and her children. I just, you know, I've thought a lot about her um, having having felt so close to her, so identified with her when I had this idea of her and her family, her children using this this house as a refuge. And then how much that refuge, you know, failed her in a really, really important way. While you were actually living at 239 East 7th Street, did you ever even have a thought about the previous inhabitants, or was it solely this experience that prompted you to start digging and asking, who lived here before us? Yeah, I think it was really the experience, um, because I uh, was not, very curious about the buildings past. I mean, I think the place that I was in my life with being, you know, having two young children and trying to set up our own home, that tends to focus you very, very sharply on the present and that present both physically and in time. And so uh, I didn't think about it. I didn't feel their presence there. You know, it's not like I felt like, oh, this is a haunted house. And unfortunately, they weren't there to warn you of right. what was yeah, to come. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and then and then for some reason, when I started to find out about them, and I found I started finding out about them by finding out about the building and its structure, I had this curiosity, and I think that happens a lot in life, where you'll pass by something a hundred times, and it's not of interest to you. And then you, something happens in your own life, you know, you develop in a certain way, you have a certain experience, and that's then the book you need to read or the poem you need or the song you need to listen to, and you just eat it up and it it becomes vital. ¶¶ 
This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boraki. This morning, we're talking with Catherine Greider. After being forced out of her Manhattan row house because it was deemed structurally unsound, she wanted to know why. Her investigation uncovered the stories of many of the building's previous inhabitants. She shares it all in her new book, The Archaeology of Home, an epic set on a thousand square feet of the Lower East Side. Was there a family who lived in this building that lived the life you wished you had lived Mm. at 239 East 7th Street? I mean, I do think that the Weeder family who lived there in the early 20th century well, actually, the first half of the 20th century, and that's the point. They did make a homestead of it in a way that we had wanted to, you know, and they, they were very deeply identified with it. Gisela and Simon Weeder, who were who were uh, Jewish immigrants from a little town in Hungary, and they, you know, raised their five boys there. Um, they were actually sort of teenagers when they moved in. Um, and then three of them stayed on in well into their middle age. Um, so they were kind of fixtures on the block. Simon would pray in his, his shul, his synagogue, which was right across the street. The sons were very much involved in the in the Jefferson Democratic Club, which was, you know, Tammany Hall's outpost on, on the block. In a sense, I think they had the sense of community and of permanence and for them, it was the beachhead they wanted to establish, and it was quite an accomplishment that they were able to do that. Have you ever had the opportunity to meet any of the descendants of these families? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I mean, I did a, a lot of interviews for the last chapter of the book, which is about the 70s and 80s, um, and for this chapter, which deals with the Jewish East Side in the first part of the 20th century, I did find some descendants of of uh, two of the families, the, the Silbermans who lived upstairs from the Weeders, and also the Weeders. I talked to the grandson, Al, who's a fantastic person, and um, I, I actually, it was so gratifying to get to know him and his family because they're, you know, really creative and intellectual and compassionate, involved people, um, living now mostly in California. So that was nice. And he liked sharing his memories of his grandparents and his parents. The name Jacob Van Corlear factors into the history of the Lower East Side. Who was he? He was a Dutch guy who who worked for the Dutch West India Company, which, of course, founded the not so much a colony as, as a commercial outpost at the time in the 17th century on the tip of Manhattan. And he happened to be sort of associated with the administrators of, you know, the, the bureaucrats who were running it. Um, and he ended up getting some property as a result. And what was so important about him is that he represented a major, major change in the way that people related to the land and understood their relationship to the land, meaning he founded a line of title there, which was a very European way of understanding uh, land use, and replaced the Native American uh, way of using land, which had to do with moving around and using it in a seasonal way, but not making fences or making lines around it, and naming that piece after yourself, and founding this title that gave you exclusive right to it that you could then pass down theoretically to the end of time. 
Um, that was just not a way that the Lenape, who who were the natives who, who lived around this area, and they didn't live permanently on Manhattan for the most part. How painstaking was this research? Because you really dug deep into this neighborhood and your building. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it took me years. And it was, I think that um, I had to be driven by some kind of obsessive energy, you know, because I was in the library the other day and I almost sighed with exhaustion at just the thought of all the days I spent, you know. But it was a real, I had a sense of, of discovery about it. So that helped me, you know, like, for example, finding Rachel Hart's death certificate where she died and so forth. You go through reels and reels and reels of microfilm squinting at this stuff and trying to. But then when you find that you find this person that you're so interested in and you find out what happened to her and you realize that you shared the same rooms, it's so exciting. And I felt like I really wanted to bring the stories of these very ordinary, unexalted people to others. You didn't just research their lives. You also went to visit them. You went to their grave sites. Why did you do that? Well, I didn't have a really strong sense of why I was doing that at the time. I, I mean, I guess I, I thought of it as part of my research, but I noticed later that, you know, it would have been made more sense to go visit each of the graves as I was doing research on that family because it's part of genealogical research. You go to the, you know, municipal archives and blah, 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 look, go look at wills, et cetera. But instead, I kind of saved them all up till I, I'd done all the genealogical research and I just was going to go and visit all these graves this one spring. And I realized after I got there that I'd been so looking forward to it and that I, you know, I had my boots for the rain and everything. And and it was a really lovely experience, but I also felt a certain disappointment because I felt like I had drawn so close to these people by thinking about them so much and finding out every fact and feeling a sort of obligation or a kind of sense of, you know, duty about finding out as much as I could about them, that I almost thought that they would appear to me. I almost felt like now I get to go and meet them and it's going to be so much fun, you know. (laughs) And so I felt a little bit disappointed. You know, I realized I'm here I am and, you know, the birds are singing and here's the stone and and I felt a sense of loss then like, okay, death is really truly impermeable and, you know, nobody gets to penetrate that that wall. Despite all of your research, you weren't able to find documentation of the construction of 239 East 7th Street. Do you know when this building was built? Well, you know, there wasn't any documentation. Um, And I'm pretty convinced of that because it was not the sort of thing that was required at the time. And if you didn't have an architect, you know, or anybody sort of who who had any interest in or builder who had an interest in claiming the building, then you wouldn't have any records. Um, and there wasn't a buildings department that required that at the time. So the way I determined when the building appeared on that site, and it was the first building ever built on that site, was by looking at tax assessment records. And so this lot just uh, leaped up in value in the year 1845. Um, and that was a year that a bunch of the lots on that block, and I mean, you know, by a factor of, you know, 10 times or something. Like that. So, and then it suddenly had the value of a house as opposed to just a lot. The lots were valued at a couple hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks. There had been a kind of a a real depression right before that. That's how I, I realized that, okay, now there's a house there. You had thought 
that 239 East 7th Street was abandoned for a time during the 1970s, right? But that turned out not to be the case? Yeah, well, it was kind of semi-abandoned. I mean, what I, I had been looking at these, um, it, they're called reverse directories, so you can go and look up the address and see who was there. And this, this proved a, a, an effective uh, method all the way through. Uh, that's how I knew that the Weeders had lived there through the 50s, you know, some of the Weeder sons. Um, but then during the 70s, yeah, there was a period where there was nobody listed. Um, and I, 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 but as I started interviewing people from that era, um, someone said, oh, yeah, I remember there was a family there. And, you know, and I realized, okay, not everybody had a telephone. And this is how these directories at that, in that era were put together. Um, they didn't have somebody visiting door to door. They just, you know, used the, so not everybody had a telephone. Not everybody was an official resident at that time. It was a very, uh, very intense and and in many ways devastating time to be in the neighborhood. By the end, there was still one family paying rent. Um, they were not listed at that address, but they were still paying rent. Um, and the houses next to it, there were fires all over the neighborhood. Um, and those, the, our house and the two next to it, or three next to it actually, were eventually mostly abandoned. There was a guy who was in the basement who's running a shooting gallery, you know, who's having, getting a little money um, to let people shoot up there. He had a bucket for a toilet, you know, the plumbing was gone. Um, And, you know, there was this one family living on the parlor floor with teenage kids still trying to pay rent. And then upstairs there, there was some kids who were trying to set up a drug dealing situation. Um, This was when an owner came in and bought it in, in 1980. And he, he was aware of these folks, as well as some other people that I talked to. But they weren't listed. Did that period also, do you think, contribute to the trouble your building had after you moved in? Yes, definitely. I mean, that was kind of the coup de grace, which, which occurred well before we actually <laughs> moved in. You know, uh, little did we know. If you look at a photograph of that neighborhood um, and you go there now, from the 1970s, late 1970s or early 1980s, you'll be absolutely stunned. There's a picture in the book that looks down from 4th Street on these streets, and it is a pile of rubble. You know, there's some standing buildings. 7th Street, our block did relatively well. But, I mean, demolition was by was not at all unusual. Fires, vandalism, demolition. So what happened was that the building next door to our building was one of these buildings that fell to this this process. And um, it actually had shared a party wall with our building. So it was built, they were built to hold each other up. They, they you know, were 12 inches together. So when you, that, that, that wall, when you took down the one building in this very ragged manner, it kind of sheared away part of our bearing wall. Um, and then, you know, there was some essentially you know, amateurs, well-meaning attempts to shore it up. But it had no appropriate bearing wall, and then it was exposed to the weather all those years. And then it was also on this this shifty kind of uh, soil, which occurred in 1980, set in motion the events um, that took place when we were there. A lot of us dread the day we have to move. It's such a pain to pack up all of our belongings and take them somewhere else. But in the 19th century, it was actually quite common to move. In fact, people moved pretty much once a year, right? You write about that in your book. 
Yeah, and this was part of what I found so interesting is this kind of vacillation that we all make in our lives between staying someplace and making a home and moving. And it turns out that, you know, urban life, especially in New York, has always had this kind of restlessness to it and this mobility, which is about kind of seeking new opportunities. And in the case of of New York City, it was also about the unregulated, you know, rental marketplace, that it was a wild and woolly situation that everybody had to kind of do their best in. So all the leases would expire on May 1st, which was the traditional May Day, you know. And so everybody, whether they were trying to beat a rising rent or move to a more, a kind of slightly more fashionable neighborhood, because the neighborhoods were changing even faster in the 19th century as the city developed, um, they would all just flood into their streets with their um, carts and their their horse-drawn carts, all their stuff on a on the cart, and go to their new place, which made for a very, I saw it as kind of this expression of the urban festival and kind of almost a performance of this new lifestyle that was developing in New York City. How long have you been now in your current home? Let's see, seven years. Have you felt the need to research the previous inhabitants of your current place? No. (laughs) No, I mean, no. And I think there is something about being in a place right now where you need to invest it with your own meaning and your own uses. It's like I said, you know, sometimes the past comes alive for you in a way and you need need it. And other times, not so much. (laughs) The book is The Archaeology of Home, an epic set on a 1,000 square feet of the Lower East Side. Catherine, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Catherine Grider's book, The Archaeology of Home, is published by Public Affairs. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Don't forget, you can visit wfuv.org slash cityscape to get past editions of the show. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter. We're listed as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCreary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. <laughs> 